one of my favorite Sunday school songs as a kid growing up in church uh, was the song Father Abraham. You guys know Father Abraham? It goes something like this. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. You guys didn't think I was going to sing it, right? Okay, come on, come on. And I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm, Father Abraham. Then it goes on, like the song that never ends, adding your left arm and then your right foot and then your left foot until by the end all the kids are worked up into their frenzies and the Sunday school teachers hate their life. <laughs> you can see why I liked it so much, can't you? But you know what I understand now that I didn't then growing up about Father Abraham? It's the theology of it. Believe it or not, the Father Abraham song expresses a sound biblical theology, even in its simplicity, that all those who have faith in Jesus are actually the spiritual children of the one to whom God made his great promises, to Abraham himself. You know, without saying it explicitly, that silly song speaks to the fact that the way God rescues sinners now, well, it's the same way that he's always rescued sinners even Father Abraham himself. It's by faith alone. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans 4. Romans 4, it's on page 941 of the Bible underneath your seat. If you don't have a Bible this morning, I'll please avail yourself of that one. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we'll take it home. It's yours. We'd love for you to have it. If you've never read Romans 4, you might be wondering why I began my sermon with such a silly illustration well, I hope when we read it here in a few uh, moments, this portion of the Scripture, you'll realize that the illustration wasn't that silly after all. In fact, Paul utilizes Abraham along with David as kind of living color illustrations from the Bible itself about how God saves sinners like you and me. Our text this morning is smack dab in the middle of a, of a rather long extended argument that Paul began all the way back in chapter 1, which he then developed in chapters 1 to 3, specifically that, that humanity has an insurmountable problem. We're all rebels against our Creator's rule and care and therefore deserve the just and fair recompense for our rebellion against God. What we all deserve it's for God to pour out his wrath upon us in eternal hell for all eternity. But thanks be to God, our God did not leave us to our sin and its penalty. In amazing love, he put forward Christ Jesus to satisfy the demands of his justice by dying in the place of sinners. That's what we saw last week in Romans 3, 21 to 26. Christ's propitiating sacrifice turned away God's wrath for all who would trust in him because God the Father judged Christ the Son in our place. It's stunning grace and mercy to be received by the empty hands of faith. And then at the very tail end of Romans 3, Paul fleshed out some of the implications of this doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone. Most importantly, that justification by faith levels human pride. We can't boast in what we do because that's not how God saves us. He saves through faith in Christ. And likewise, we can't boast in who we are 
our ethnicity or our family or our religious background or anything like that because God doesn't save on the basis of who we are either. God saves all people on the basis of what Christ has done. And all of this, Paul says, ought to just demolish our pride so that our boast is in God alone for what he has done in saving us. That's Romans 1 to 3 in a nutshell. And now as we, as we turn to chapter 4, what Paul does, friends, is take those themes there at the end of chapter 3 in verses 27 to 31. He takes those themes that we can't boast in who we are or what we do, and he proves that case from the Bible itself. He proves his case through scriptures every Jew would have known and believed, the Old Testament. Let's read together, starting in verse 1. Friend, our text today is going to go beyond what is printed in your, in your worship guide. It's going to go through the end, or excuse me, through the beginning of verse 17. Romans 4.1. What shall what then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the, of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not before, or excuse me, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are, be to, who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one that shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, the main idea, I think, of Romans 4, 1 to 17, A, the main idea of this passage of Scripture that I trust will be the main idea of the sermon this morning is this. Rescue from sin's penalty is and has always been by faith alone in God's promise. Your salvation, my salvation, our rescue from sin's penalty, it is and it has always been by faith alone in God's promise. 
Two points this morning from the two large sections of text. Number one, in verses one to eight, we see saving faith illustrated. Saving faith illustrated in the lives of Abraham and David. And then in in the rest of the passage in verses 9 to 17a, we see saving faith applied. Saving faith illustrated, saving faith applied. Friends, one of the things that actually makes me a tad nervous about a sermon like this and a text like this is is that we might be tempted to kind of approach it like an academic textbook. You know, obviously, the, the, the points that Paul is making in this portion of the letter are, are kind of technical arguments, aren't they, based on the truth of the Old Testament. So I think it'd be easy to kind of to view this passage this morning as, as pedantic or lifeless or irrelevant to our lives. But friends, just the opposite is true. That this passage of Scripture is not clinical. It's not meant to make you yawn. It's meant to make you sing for joy when we see that from start to finish, God has always been in the business of justifying the ungodly by faith alone. If you're here not a Christian this morning, I pray that this passage might actually help explain to you and, and clarify for you more of the nature of Christianity. It's not about lifeless religion and forms, but about a living and breathing relationship with God by reliance on his promises. Promises that he made in ancient times to Abraham and that he faithfully brought to pass in our Lord Jesus Christ. You can entrust your life to our God because he's reliable, he's merciful and gracious. And for those of us who are believers in Jesus, I pray that God's word this morning might bolster our faith that God's word would continue to kind of till up any hard-packed soil of of pride and arrogance in our hearts to produce in us a, a soft and rich humility that magnifies our God and works for the good of others. So let's dig into the text this morning. Number one, saving faith illustrated. I think that one of the keys to understanding this passage is to realize that once again, Paul has resumed his conversation with who? Where's George the Jew? You got it. That's the playful way I've described Paul's imaginary dialogue partner that he's, he's kind of brought along with him in this section of Romans. And Paul raises the objections that the Jews would often make in response to, the, to his preaching of the gospel in order to kind of knock them down one by one by one. And here in verse one, the objection was probably something like this. Okay, Paul, You say that righteousness is given through faith, not merited through works. Okay, then, what about our great forefather Abraham, the fountainhead of our nation? God rewarded him, after all, for his obedience, for his works. We actually know this was a common idea among the Jews of the time because the Mishnah, the collection of oral traditions from the rabbis, said this, Abraham was perfect in all his dealings with the Lord and gained favor by his righteousness throughout his life. I don't know where they got that, but that's what it said. And so beginning in verse 1, Paul proves that this kind of biblical grenade that the Jews lobbed his way was really just a dud. It had no power. What What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Paul asked George the Jew a hypothetical question about whether Abraham might have been justified, declared righteous by God. That's what justified means. 
Might he have been declared righteous by God on the basis of his obedience to God? And then he just kind of plays it out, right? Let's imagine, Paul says, that Abraham was justified by works. Well, if that were true, then he would have legitimate grounds to boast because he was the one who made himself right with God. But in fact, Abraham doesn't have any reason to boast before God. Why? Because Scripture itself teaches that it wasn't Abraham's doing that earned his righteous status. It was his believing. It wasn't his doing, but his believing God's promise that was the means by which God counted him righteous. And there's a huge difference. By the way, quick rabbit trail. Uh, I love how Paul phrases the question here in verse 3. He says, for what does the Scripture say? He could have said something like, what is written in the Scripture? What's been written? That would have been just fine. But instead, he asked what the scripture says. Friends, I, I think Paul here is taking his cues from the Lord Jesus and believing that what is recorded in the Old Testament is in fact the voice of God speaking to us. What the scripture says, God says. And in this case, what does the scripture say? Verse three, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham is, or Abraham, Paul is quoting uh, about Abraham here in, from Genesis 15, 6. We read the story earlier in the service. Abraham was childless. His wife, Sarai, was, was barren. And yet God had told him earlier in his life that through his offspring, God would bring salvation to all the nations, to the entire world, that he would make Abraham's name great through his descendant and give the land of Canaan to his offspring. Yet at this point in Abraham's life there in Genesis 15, he had no solid evidence that God would actually make good on his promise. So what did Abraham begin to speculate? Well, maybe, maybe God will carry out his promise through my servant, Eliezer. Maybe that's the way he'll do it. And so one night, the Lord took Abraham outside and beckoned him to survey the night sky, to count the innumerable stars in the sky, promising that Abraham would indeed have a son. In fact, Abraham's descendants would be just as innumerable as the stars of the night sky. And the scripture says in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed the Lord. He took God at his word. He relied on God's promised salvation by faith. And Genesis 15, 6 says that in that very moment of believing, God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. Friends, that word count there is important to Paul. He's going to use it four more times in verses three to eight. It's a financial term or a commercial term that means to credit or to reckon. It carries the idea of something being credited to someone's account that they don't have on their own. In this case, it's God's righteousness being credited, reckoned, counted to Abraham. Notice the text doesn't say that God made Abraham righteous. That's not what happened in that moment. Abraham's character would slowly change over the course of his life. But in that moment, in the moment of trusting in God's promise, God counted, he credited Abraham to be entirely righteous. You say, well, John, it still kind of sounds like Abraham did something, right? He believed, that's kind of a work, right? 
No way. Look at how Paul sets up the contrast between working and believing in verses 4 and 5. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Friends, there are two different ways that money can be credited to your bank account. You can work and receive a wage that you earned, or you can receive money that you didn't earn as a gift. Uh, Tomorrow's the first business day of the month. Many of you, I assume, will have your paycheck land in your bank account. And guess what? None of you are going to run first thing to your boss and bow down before him and said, thank you so much for your gracious gift of that money. None of you are going to do that. You know why? Because it's not a gift. You earned it through the toil and sweat of your work. But faith, on the other hand, it doesn't work for righteousness. It receives God's righteousness as the free gift that it is. Faith is simply trusting in, relying on, believing in the one who justifies the ungodly, namely God himself, to grant us what we do not have on our own. Friends, I don't know of sweeter words in the entire Bible than Romans 4 or 5. Let's read it again. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We talked about this truth last week, but it should stun us again today. That the just God, the God who's entirely righteous and just, he freely pardons rebels against his rule instead of condemning them, instead of condemning us. That's what he did with ungodly Abraham. That's what he does with ungodly you and ungodly me. How? How does he do this? How does he accomplish this? Because he has judged our sin on another. That was Paul's entire argument in Romans 3, 21 to 26. God's justice is preserved when he justifies sinners because he judged Christ in our place. Christ Jesus' death turns away his wrath and satisfies the demands of God's justice. So instead of of judgment and death, God grants the ungodly like us salvation and life. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good news. If you're not a Christian today, friends, this gospel of how you even today, even in this very moment, can be reconciled and restored to a right relationship with your holy creator that you have spurned in your sin, this is unfathomably good news. It's not by doing anything. It's not by working. It's not by your your good deeds or your philanthropic efforts or your your church attendance or anything that would give you grounds to, to pat yourself on the back for your own achievement. No. God justifies by faith so that when you receive his righteousness as a gift, you can boast in his achievement. This cuts right against the grain of our pride, doesn't it? The only play in our playbook as humans that we know how to come up with to relate ourselves to God is the do play, the earn play, right? The merit play in the playbook. But the message of the gospel is simply that those plays do not work. They're stuffed at the line of scrimmage. Works don't earn God's righteousness any more than my three-year-old scribbles on a piece of paper earns him a place in an art museum. 
righteousness is not obtained by you working for God, but by God working for you and you receiving that work by faith. In verse six, Paul moves from Israel's greatest patriarch to Israel's greatest king. It's not just Abraham who is justified by faith, Paul says. It's David too. We'll pick it back up in verse five. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Because I think it's clear that, that Paul plugs in this passage of Scripture from Psalm 32, 1 and 2, because that psalm also uses the word count. Did you see that? At the end of verse 8, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Here, this, this righteousness of Psalm 32, the accent is on the forgiveness of sins. To be righteous before God is for God not to count our sins against us and therefore for him not to treat us as our sins deserve. As New Testament believers, we know that we look back to the cross at this point in history. We know that the reason God doesn't count sins against sinners is that he counts them as paid in full by Jesus' atoning death. Last year, the... uh, the Biden administration announced their plan to forgive as much as $20,000 of student debt uh, that, that students had incurred in their education. Uh, just one of those totally non-controversial executive decisions that a, a president makes, right? Without getting into the politics of it all, uh, you understand that it's not like the demands of those loans merely evaporated, Right? The teeth of what people owe legally cannot just go poof into thin air. And so what will happen if if this executive order stands up in court is that that taxpayers will end up footing the bill so that others' loans might be forgiven. Friends, it's the same thing in relationship to God. Dare I compare these two? Uh, The sin debt of our rebellion against God cannot magically go poof by anything we do, or frankly, by anything God does if he is to remain holy and just and true to his word. For our sin debt to be forgiven, someone has to pay the debt. And that's what Jesus did. He took all our sins and he nailed them to the tree. He died the death that we deserve so that we could live the life that he had earned. See, justification by faith in Christ, friends, involves a double counting, a double crediting. On the one hand, God will never count our sins against us because Jesus paid it all. On the other hand, God credits our morally bankrupt account with his righteousness as a gift. Totally apart from anything we do, we merely receive it by grace through faith. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or as one theologian put it, Christ became sin with our sins in order that we might become righteous with God's righteousness. You know what's clear in this passage, friends? 
Justification is not you and God making a deal. It's not you swapping your faith for his righteousness. That's not it at all. That would make faith a work and give you grounds to boast. It's not a trade between you and God. What Paul says is that saving faith is merely the channel by which God grants us his righteousness. God counted or credited to Abraham's account a righteousness from the outside that Abraham didn't have. That's why the reformers, friends, called this righteousness that God grants in justification an alien righteousness. Not because it's like extraterrestrial, okay? Not that type of alien, but a righteousness alien to you. It's from outside you, apart from you. It's God's righteousness credited to your account. Very specifically, it's the righteousness of Jesus that he earned in his perfect life credited to you, even as your sin is credited to Jesus on the cross. You see, friends, the great trade-off isn't your faith for God's righteousness. No, the great and glorious trade-off, the great and glorious exchange is your sin for God's righteousness at Christ's expense. And this exchange should lay our pride in the dust. Uh, one of my wife Lindsay's love languages is gift, giving and receiving. Um, woe is me if I fail to come through on a birthday or an anniversary or Christmas or Valentine's Day or Mother's Day or the first game of Alabama football. Or... <laughs> but as much as Lindsay loves the thoughtfulness of gifts, you know what I've, I've never seen or heard her do? I've never once heard her brag about how good of a gift receiver she is. Not once. I'd be worried about her sanity if she did that. I've never seen my kids brag about their skill at gift receiving on Christmas morning. That would make no sense. Friends, no one merely receives a gift, and no one who merely receives a gift has any grounds to boast about receiving it. If anything, the only grounds the receiver has for boasting is in the giver. The giver is the one who is to be praised and honored and thanked. Friends, when you notice the ugliness of pride in your own heart, perhaps in other folks, especially in your own heart, you can be pretty certain that you've lost sight of God's grace in Christ. The knowledge that your salvation was a gift of God through faith in Jesus and not anything you've done, it's designed to, over time, massage into your soul an ever-deepening humility before God and others. Let me just give you a couple ways to think about this, okay, in application. We as humans often tend to measure our worth by what we do, don't we? How well we do in school, how much we accomplish in our career, how successful we are as a mom or as a dad or as a spouse. But friends, when you come to understand that your righteousness comes from Christ alone, you know what you can do? You can joyfully release your death grip obsession to always have to prove yourself and your worth to other people. Your identity as a Christian is shaped by God's declaration of your righteous standing before him, not any declaration that you can make or others can make about yourself and what you do. You know, some of you this morning are just, just racked 
by a restlessness and a constant striving to be the best and achieve the most and, a, and just prove yourself. Maybe you, had a, maybe you had a mom or a dad growing up whose attention and love, you felt like you always had to earn by proving yourself to them, proving your worth. And that's trained you to relate to others and to God in the same way. Beloved, call this to mind daily, hourly, minutely. Don't think that's a word, but do it anyway. If you're in Christ, you are justified. You have God's attention and love because Christ Jesus has God's attention and love now and forever. So just relax. Rest in Jesus. Stop running on the hamster wheel of merit and achievement and performance and do, do, do. You have the grace of God in Christ. Others of you this morning just crave the approval of others. You want so bad for people to think highly of you. When you're with other Christians, you want so badly for them to see you as the, the most knowledgeable or the most godly or the most spiritually influential. You're the, you're the one who always has to kind of insert your opinion when it's not even asked for. You're always asserting yourself so that you're kind of at the, the, the forefront of every social situation. Although you'd never say it out loud, you want so badly to be praised. Well, friends, do you see how a right understanding of justification by faith should just lay a wrecking ball to these type of instincts. It's God in Christ who deserves all the praise, not you. You don't need to fight and claw for the esteem of others because what is true of you has already been publicly declared at the cross. You're no better than anyone else as a sinner before God, and you're also an equal receiver with everyone else who, of faith of God's righteousness. So brother and sister, those craving approval, the title over your life right now is righteous, forgiven, child of God, all by grace alone. What other esteem do you need? Your value is already fixed because your ransom has already been paid at the cross. So stop pining for the glory that is God's alone. There are so many other applications. Humble Christians are thankful Christians. Humble Christians are joyful Christians. Humble Christians are prayerful Christians. Humble Christians are loving and serving Christians. Humility really is the fountainhead of godliness, isn't it? It's the fountain from which all godliness springs. So friends, let the gospel do its work in your heart. Let the doctrine of justification by faith alone settle on your soul, so that by God's grace, you tamp down your pride and you lift up your God. Abraham and David had no room to boast, and neither do we. It's all of grace. It's all of God. Rescue from sin's penalty is and has always been by faith alone in God's promise. Number two, number two, saving faith applied. Starting in verse nine, Paul teases out one of, one of the primary uh, implications of justification by faith alone, that it's for everyone who believes. Look at verse nine. Is this blessing, the, the blessing of righteousness and forgiveness of sins that David sings about in Psalm 32, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? 
In other words, is it for Jews only or is it also for the Gentiles? Now, for us in modern-day America, this seems like a funny question, doesn't it? Our entire system here in the U.S. is designed to give an equal opportunity to everyone, right? And, and it seems funny from a Christian perspective, too. Of course salvation is for the Gentiles. Jesus said to go out into all the world and make disciples. No duh, right? We know that. But friends, you realize that it's, that it's likely that the Jews would have understood Psalm 32 as applying only to the Jews, only to the circumcised, since circumcision was the outward sign of God's covenant with them. So as the Jewish logic went, circumcision was kind of a, a prerequisite to receive God's grace. No circumcision, no righteousness. I think it's super interesting that Paul did not answer his question about the, the one who receives the blessing of Psalm 32, 1 and 2, by exegeting Psalm 32. Did you notice that? What does Paul do? Instead, in verse 9, he exegetes Psalm 32 by appealing to Genesis 15, 6 again. Apparently, if you want to understand Psalm 32, you've got to understand Genesis 15. Verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Or under what circumstances, I think is what Paul is asking. Under what circumstances was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after but before he was circumcised. Friends, you see what Paul is doing here? Okay, don't, don't let your eyes glaze over, okay? Don't sleep on this. I love this because it shows that reading the Bible carefully really matters. Paul says, read your Bibles, guys. God justified Abraham in Genesis 15. That's when Abraham believed God's promise and it was counted to him as righteousness. In the story of Genesis, Abraham was not circumcised until Genesis 17, some 14 years later in his life. So then, righteousness cannot possibly be based on circumcision because God declared Abraham to be righteous way before he commanded him to be circumcised. So if righteousness is possible without circumcision, then why did God institute it anyway? Well, Paul tries to answer this question in verses 11 to 12. Verse, verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, circumcision did not justify Abraham and it doesn't justify anyone. Rather, circumcision merely confirmed or authenticated the right standing before God that Abraham already had. It was a sign to identify him and his offspring as the justified people of God. It was not the basis of their justification. One more quick rabbit trail this morning. Um, isn't it interesting that what was true for this order between justification and its confirming sign, circumcision for Abraham, the order of justification and the accompanying sign is true for us as believers today, Right? First, we are justified through faith in Jesus. And then, and only then, are we baptized as the outward seal and sign of our justification by faith. The order matters a lot. What works well as a sign makes a pathetic substitute for what is signified. 
right? Water baptism is beautiful and it's necessary as an outward seal of saving faith. But water baptism cannot function as a substitute for saving faith. And at that point, if it substitutes for saving faith, it just becomes mere rit ritual. You just get wet. It has no capacity to save at all. It's no better than the Jews trusting in their circumcision to have God's blessing. Look at why Paul says this order of justification and circumcision ultimately matters in the case of Abraham. Middle of verse 11. The purpose was to make him the father of all, of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. In other words, to make it simple, Abraham is the father of Gentile believers. If you think about it, was Abraham technically a Gentile or a Jew when God declared him righteous? He was a Gentile. He was not circumcised yet, which the Jews understood as fundamental to their identity. Therefore, circumcision is no more necessary to the Gentile salvation than to Abraham's. He's the father of all believing Gentiles. And all God's people said, Amen. Verse 12, here's the second reason why this order matters. Purpose two, to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It's a mouthful. In other words, circumcision was never supposed to be enough to get God's righteousness. It's never was supposed to be enough. It's always been about walking in the footsteps of Abraham's Faith, circumcision alone is insufficient to belong to the, to the true people of God. Don't you realize how scandalous, how deeply offensive this truth is to unbelieving Jews? Because Paul is teaching that Abraham is only the father of Jews who have true saving faith. It's only Jews, it's only Jews who believe the promises of God in Christ that truly belong to God's people. In other words, both Jews and Gentiles are justified before God in the exact same way. It's through faith alone. So that together, both Jew and Gentile are part of Christ's new covenant people. It's the new and true Israel that God has created by Christ's blood and sealed through baptism. It's the church. The gospel of Jesus, friends, is the great leveler of all humanity. All need justification and all receive it in the exact same way, by grace through faith. You see, circumcision and, and moralistic rituals and, and ethnic superiority and all the rest, those things divide, don't they? They divide one group from another group. They divide one ethnicity from another ethnicity, one skin color from another skin color. Those things train a person to lift himself or lift herself up over the other in pride. I'm better. I'm more righteous than you because, fill in the blank, self-righteousness divides. Humble faith in Christ unites. It forges together peoples from all different backgrounds, all different classes, all different education backgrounds. Faith in Christ transcends them all. The gospel breaks down natural human barriers to make God's people one in Christ. Beloved, do you understand 
that we as a church ought to prayerfully cultivate and work toward this type of unity here at RGC. We ought to work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's a love that is shocking to the world. When someone who doesn't know Jesus walks into this place, the type of love that they see ought to stun them. When people who are the same love each other, well, that's not really that stunning at all to the world. The world's not shocked when when college students in the same fraternity or sorority house love each other. That's normal. They're not stunned most likely when singles hang out with singles, married with married, young with young, old with old, white with white, black with black, educated with educated. The world expects that because that's how those without Christ operate too. But what should rightly stun them is the type of supernatural love that only Jesus through his gospel can create. Where people with little in common, but, but Jesus, little in common, but Jesus, love each other sacrificially and joyfully and constantly. Where the college student chooses to hang out with the senior saint. Where the educated businessman spends time praying and discipling the young factory worker where the busy mom of three brings a meal to the suffering newlywed, where the married invest in the singles and those of different ethnicities pursue each other in love. Friends, what could possibly create such an atmosphere of love and unity? Only the gospel, only justification by grace through faith. Friends, who right now in our church family are you loving and pursuing and discipling that would kind of evidence this supernatural power of the gospel? Or would you rather just be with people like you? Or maybe you would rather not be with anyone at all. You're just self-focused. You say, John, where, where do I start with this? Where do I start with the supernatural love? Well, first of all, join a church. Join a church, become a member of a local expression of Christ's body. If not our church, join another one. The local church, friends, is is God's ordained context in which he expects this type of love to flourish. It's his God-ordained greenhouse in which supernatural love grows and flourishes on the vine. Belonging to a church, friends, puts a face on the name. Or Excuse me, let me say that again. I I like this statement, so let me me back it up. Belonging to a church puts a face and a name on the commands of love in the New Testament. It binds you to them in a relationship of Christian commitment and affection. If you're a member of the body here at RGC, are you intentional about this? Are you looking for others to serve and disciple and befriend that are kind of outside your, your comfort zone? Beloved, come to church each and every Sunday ready to throw out the grappling hook of love to someone who's sitting alone to someone who who looks like they're new or a first-time guest. Don't just file in and out like this is some ticketed worship event. No, this this is more like a family reunion built around worship and word. That's what it is. How about this? Come to our corporate prayer nights. How better to foster the supernatural love of Christ for others, not like you, than by praying together for them. Join a house to house group. We intentionally structure our community groups not to be demographic specific so that we can see the Holy Spirit put the supernatural love of Jesus 
on display so that our church becomes a compelling witness to God's grace in Christ that rescues all. You say, John, only you could get from the order of Abraham's justification and circumcision to the topic of church membership. <laughs> Guilty as charged. The point is this. The gospel creates the one people of God, the church, which then becomes the display case, the show window, the bulletin board to show off the beauty of the gospel. May God help us to be that type of church. As we wrap up, look at verse 13. I decided to preach these four verses, so hopefully the Easter sermon will be a tad shorter, God willing. Look at verse 13. Paul continues, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inheritor of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations." It's a dense few verses, but I think Paul's basic point is the same point that he's been making all along. If God's promise to Abraham and his offspring depended on obedience to the Old Testament law, all would be hopeless. In fact, Paul implies yet another argument from the order of the Bible and the flow of salvation history that, that I think he makes more explicit in, in Galatians. There's just no way that righteousness comes through the law because God gave Moses the law 430 years after God gave his promise to Abraham. If law-keeping is how you get right with God, well, that would annul God's promise to Abraham and no one would ever get saved. God would break his word and the promise would be void. No one would ever be saved from their sin. No blessing uh, uh, for the nations of the world through Abraham. Why? Because no one can keep God's law perfectly and thus earn righteousness. The law only brings wrath as the just penalty for people transgressing it. Paul says... That's why the promise depends on faith in order that it met, might rest on grace. It's to be received as a gift of grace by faith so that everyone who does receive it by faith becomes a true child of Abraham. Friends, in Paul's mind, law, law as a way to be right with God and, 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 and promise, those categories of law and promise belong in entirely different categories of thought, okay? They're incompatible. Think of it this way, law language, God's you shall, demands our obedience. But promise language, God's I will, demands our faith. God's law demands our obedience, but the promise, God's promise demands our faith. Faith's only function, friend, is to humbly receive what God offers by his grace. I think the surprising thing in these verses isn't so much Paul's line of thinking, since he's kind of just another way of saying what he's been saying about justification. What's surprising, I think, is what Paul says is the gist or the content of God's promise in verse 13. Paul says the promise is that Abraham and his offspring would be heirs of the world. 
Friends, you won't find a specific verse in Genesis that says that Abraham and his offspring will inherit the world. And yet that's what Abraham believed would happen. Apparently, Abraham did not understand God's promise that he would inherit the land of Canaan to be merely referring to a piece of territory in modern-day Palestine. Rather, Abraham interpreted each of God's promises to him through the lens of the others. So God didn't just promise Abraham land, did he? No, not just land. He promised Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through his descendant. He promised that Abraham's offspring would be more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. And Abraham fused all these things together. He believed that God's promise meant that he would become more than one nation. He would become a multitude of nations. If you tie all these promises together, as God's global promise for Abraham's children came true, he and his offspring would indeed become the heirs of the entire world. So it's really no surprise, is it, that as God's promises developed over time, the psalmists began to sing and the prophets began to prophesy that a king would arise from David's line, from the tribe of Judah, and the offspring of Abraham who would reign from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth, Psalm 72. This is the one, as we confessed earlier, before whom all kings would bow and all nations serve. The Messiah King would come to restore the world that Adam lost and so fulfill God's promise to Abraham. Friends, in his life, his death, his resurrection, Christ our King did just that. As the son of Abraham and the son of David, he reclaimed all that Adam forfeited in the fall and so fulfilled God's ancient and mighty promise to bless the world through Abraham's seed. Even today, across this globe, the message of Christ's salvation is proclaimed among all the nations in hundreds of thousands of pulpits in fulfillment of these promises. Our God is gathering his people in from every tribe, tongue, and nation. If you're trusting in Christ Jesus this morning, friend, you too are an inheritor of God's promise. You're an inheritor with Abraham of the whole world. We carry with us the hope of everlasting joy and glory and a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, where forever we will boast in him. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and I hope so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we are your people by faith in your word. Help us to rely on it as people of the promise until the day that you return, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.